the Bible reading this week was 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Amos. So if you've read Amos this week, it's probably been the first time maybe since last year you looked at it or thought about old brother Amos. He was a minor prophet. And so what I would like to examine this morning is the way, and I won't say this is the only way, but this is the way that I study minor prophets. I'll give you some tools on how to go about studying, because as Elliot was telling me, he read through it this week, it went in one ear, it kind of swirled around again, and then went back out, and he really didn't have a place for it to land, and uh, nothing against him. I think all of us, if we just read one of these short minor prophets, and we don't have anything else to hook it onto, that's probably just about what's going to happen. And so, the short answer I'll give you is context. Context, context, context. As you're reading any book of the Bible, finding out as much context for what's going on is a wise idea. Now, you can't open up the Minor Prophet and say, well, this happened in this, this year, you know, and it doesn't give you a date necessarily. Um, but it does give you clues. Many of them will tell you it happened in this king's administration or reign or in this king or give you some other events that you can kind of plug in and see where it's at. Um, you may think that's a weird, weird way to describe it, but if I were to tell you, well, this happened during the Nixon administration, you'd know roughly what's going on in the world and you kind of have a ballpark of where that fit in. Or in the, the Lincoln administration, you know, well, there's a big war going on. And so... It's shorthand for how you figure out where does this all fit in. And that's if we're, if we're not going to be lazy Bible students, we need to figure out where this fits in and so we can see what is this prophet, why is the Lord sending him here and now. Now often there's a twofold message. There's the immediate message, and then there's something that's expanded that may be revealed more in the New Testament, and so we'll look at that later. But in the short term, starting off, I always want to start with context. Where do we start? And so... If we look at Amos 1, it gives us the words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. Remember this time the nation is split. You had northern kingdom consisting of ten tribes. That was Israel. You had the southern kingdom of Judah consisting of two tribes. So it's the prophecy is primarily directed towards Israel, to the northern kingdom. But it says, in the days of Uzziah, a king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And then we get one more detail. Two years before the earthquake. Okay? Those are our context clues. All right? So if we just stopped right there and said, okay, well, I, I kind of vaguely remember those fellas and just jumped right into it, we're probably doing ourselves a disservice. Because um, I don't know about you, but I can't remember the details of every king without going and looking it up. Um, so let's go to our two primary sources for information. You've got the book of Kings, and you've got Chronicles. You say, well, there's a lot of overlap there. Yes. In the book of Kings, you get information on both the nations of Judah and Israel. In the book of Chronicles, it primarily focuses on the kings of Judah, but it gives you more details. Okay, So you've got summary of both, and then kind of an expanded for Judah. So we've got two kings that we're considering. Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam. So, we know that Jeroboam's father's name is Joash. That's important because there are two Jeroboams. There is one 
basically ten kings earlier, at least in Judah's uh, counting, from when the nation split. Jeroboam the son of Nebat. If you're reading through this, you're going to see his name over and over again because the kings of Israel kept following in his pattern. And what did he do? He didn't want people to go down to Judah to worship in Jerusalem where God had said. And so he made two golden cows. He put one in the south side and one on the north side and said, Here, these are your gods. Y'all worship them. So one's down in Bethel and one's in the northern portion of Dan. All right? But this is a long time ago before we get to this Jeroboam. So kind of like your mom and daddy is named you after kinfolk and relatives. They're reusing names. So we got to be careful about looking at who are we talking about. This is not that original Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. This is Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So go with me back to 2 Kings, and let's, let's paint the picture for where are we, where are we in Israel and uh, Judah's history. So let's start with Joash, Jeroboam's daddy. All right. Joash, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 13, we'll be introduced to Joash. Now, to make things even more confusing, at the time that Joash, king of Israel, becomes king, there's also a king down in Judah who's got the same name, Joash. Okay, so keep those separate. All right. So, in Second Kings chapter 13, it says, "In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, so that that's a southern guy, became Jehoash, also elsewhere just written Joash." the son of Jehoahaz, to reign over Israel in Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel, and that's often used for shorthand for that nation. All right? Got to get these clues, otherwise we'll be lost as we're reading through. And he reigns for 16 years. All right, what's the summary of his reign? He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the original guy from whom the ten tribes followed after, who made Israel to sin. What's he referring to? Those golden calves, the idolatry, right? Making these false uh, festivals of saying, here, you're supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Don't worry about that. Here, we'll have a local festival. It's around the same time. You just worship here, right? Uh, so he followed in that same pattern. That's what Joash did. And the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and his might wherewith he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And he slept with his fathers. And Jeroboam, his son sat upon his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Okay? Now, just real briefly, y'all remember um, Jehu was sent to wipe out Ahab's line? Right? Now, he wiped out Ahab's line. Ahab was a terrible king of Israel. Um, but he didn't follow after God. He was given a chance that his, his kingdom could continue, but because he was obedient and wiped out Ahab's, God told him that for four generations, your sons will sit on the throne after you. So uh, Joash would have been the, uh, the second generation after him. So two more to go until that wipes out. Um, so go to chapter 13 down at, uh, well, actually, here, we'll just briefly summarize. Y'all remember the story of Elisha and the guy who's smacking the, the arrows on the, the ground? Y'all remember that? So Elisha's sick. Okay. And the king of Israel, turns out this guy we're talking about, Joash, goes to him and says, Oh, my father! Which is kind of strange in and of itself. And they don't really care about serving God, but here there's a man of God who's um, sick, and, and he tells him, you know, take this uh, bow, shoot it out the window, boom! And he says, that's, you know, that's the deliverance of the Lord. And then take these arrows and smack them on the ground. And so he takes arrows, and he whacks three times, and 
uh, Elijah gets really mad at him and says, you should have you done it five or six or seven times. And you can read this in chapter 13. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, you're only going to whoop the Syrians three times. If you'd done it a lot, then you would have been able to completely overcome them. So instead, you're only going to have the victory three times over Syria. So that's, that's Joash. So he's going to um, have this battle back and forth with the Syrians. Um, Haziel um, is going to be fighting with him. And this is in verse 23. It says, The Lord was gracious unto them, Israel, and had respect unto them um, because of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, neither cast thee from his presence as yet. Foreshadowing. So Haziel, king of Syria, he died, and then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, I won't try and confuse you with all the kings of Syria, but Haziel murdered his boss, Ben-Hadad. He'd already named his boy after it, so you're going to have Ben-Hadad the dead, who Haziel killed, and then you're going to have Ben-Hadad Jr. here, who's Haziel's son. All right? So that's how you get these multiple names there. So that Syria is a constant enemy, and Syria is up in the northeast. And so it's always this back and forth about these borderland cities, and they're going to fight some, and then Syria's going to get them back, and they're going to fight some, and they're going to get them back. So back and forth, back and forth to Syria. All right? So Joash took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had been taken out of the hand of his father by the war. Three times did he beat them. Arrow strikes, one, two, three, and recovered the cities of Israel. Okay, so that was Jeroboam's daddy. So we're getting the background behind the background. You say, man, you're going into detail. Well, if you just kind of jump in without a little bit more of what are we reacting to, we're still kind of coming in cold. All right? So that was Joash. Now, when Joash started to reign in his second year, there was a new king down on the south side, Amaziah. All right? So you can go see him over in 2 Chronicles. Why are we going to Chronicles? Because it's a little bit more expanded for the kings of Judah. 2 Chronicles 25. Let's flip there. I'll drink some more. Alright. Second Chronicles chapter 25, verses 1 through 6. You got Amaziah. Um, he's 25 years old and begins to reign. You think you got pressure as a 20-year-old? He's 25. He becomes the king of Judah. He reigns a total of 29 years. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. That's good. But not with a perfect heart. Now, when it came to pass, the kingdom was established, he slew his servants that had king, killed the king, his father. So there had been a conspiracy, and his servants had killed his daddy. And so after he gets the, the kingdom, and he's, everybody's working for him, he goes and kills those, those guys. But he didn't kill their children. He's following the law. He's not passing it down to everybody. It's just those who did wrong. Okay? Moreover, Amaziah gathered Judah together and made them captains over thousands, captive over hundreds, um, long story short, he had, a, he had an army of about 300,000 men, all right? And they, they want to go to war. Because when you got an army, well, they're going to do something, right? Well, they want to go and fight the Edomites. Remember Jacob and his brother Esau? Jacob had a love, Esau had a hated. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And for a long time, going back to David and Solomon's time, they were under the rule of Israel. But later they rebel against it, and so they're trying to, to defeat them again. And so he gets his army of 300,000 men. He looks around. He doesn't feel like that's quite enough. And so he goes to Israel. He says, hey, I'll pay you if, you can, if I can hire out your army you know, mercenaries, right? And so they say, sure, because war, you're going to get spoils. It's going to be great. You're getting paid to go fight. They're excited. Um, and so they say, we'll send you 100,000 men. So we go from 300,000 to 400,000. They pay him, I think, 100 talents of silver. All right? But God sends a prophet to this king, he says, 
you take Israel with you because Israel is, you know, blatantly disrespecting God and idolatry, and they're just they're just not following at all. If you take them with you, you're going to lose. And the king says, "But, but I already paid him a hundred talents of silver. That, that's a truckload of money, by the way." Um, and the prophet says, "You know, God's able to repay you for that. Don't do it." And so he says, "Okay, y'all go home." When I got down, and they're really upset, right? Because in war, you're going to get spoils. You're going to have that's that's really where they're going to make their bank. And so they're being told you can't go. And so on their way home, you know where they do? They invade several cities in Judah. They said, well, we'll just conquer some right here. And they killed about 3,000 folks and took some spoils and, and went home. And so Amaziah takes his smaller army. He goes down to the Edomites, and he whoops them, just absolutely schools them. They capture 10,000 prisoners, and then in the cruelty of war, they take them up to a big rock and chunk them off over the edge. Like they, they, they won something fierce. So much so that Amaziah is like, I kind of want to get back at Israel because they you know, attacked our cities. And so he sends a little note up to the king of Israel and says, Hey, let's just meet face to face. You know, it's a motto we motto challenge, except for not really him fighting. He wants our, war, our armies to fight. And the, the king of Israel, um, now, before he did this, I missed a key point. After he whooped Edom, do you know what he brought home with him from the Edomites? All their little gods. They're little false gods, and he set them up, and he worshipped them. And God sent a prophet unto him, and he says, What are you doing? Their little gods didn't save you, didn't save them from you. What do you think they're going to do to help you? It's foolish. And so because of that, God led him on this, this errand where he's going to challenge Israel, and Israel's going to give him a way out. He's saying, you know what, this is like you know, this little twig down here saying to the redwood, uh, let, let, let my daughter marry your son. And then while he's waiting for an answer, an animal comes by and steps on it. He says, that's, that was his answer. It means, you're so insignificant to me, Judah, I don't even have time for you. Don't even bother showing up. But the Lord had hardened Amaziah's heart because of these idols. And so he's like, we're going to fight. And so they did. And you think it went well for Judah? No, not at all. All right, so if you go over to chapter 25 down in verse uh, 22, you can read the fallout. Judah was put to the worst before Israel. So they came together, they fought, and Judah fled. They're like, we got to hightail it out of here, go back to our tents. And Joash, the king of Israel, so the northern guy came down, took Amaziah, king of Judah, you can imagine him grabbing by the scruff of the neck or the ear, and, sat, and uh, he took him at, at Beth Shemesh, and he took him, took him back to Jerusalem. He brought him to Jerusalem and break down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, all right? I don't know exactly where that is on the walls, but it says it's 400 cubits. That's about two football fields worth of wall that he broke down. That is a, that's a pretty serious whooping. Not only did I whoop your army, I went to your capital city and I broke down huge chunks of your walls. Who's your daddy, right? You lost. You lost big time. And not only that, he took all the gold, the silver, the vessels that were in the king's house and also in the temple. You've got the temple of God there. He's, he's raiding God's temple and everything that was in the house of, of God with Obed-Edom. And he also took hostages and he went to Samaria. All right? So is there a little tension between Israel and Judah at this point? These are still the dads of the kings that we're interested in. All right? So that you know, Israel, Judah's been seriously whooped and embarrassed. Right? So Amaziah... Uh, the son of Joash lived after the death of Joash, the, the son of Jehoahaz, 15 years. All right? So 15 years go by, 
and you get the new king in Israel, which is going to be Jeroboam. Jeroboam the second, right? Not Jeroboam the original. Jeroboam, the guy who was named for the original. And so we can see everything written about him in just a few verses. Go back to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 14. We don't know much about him. Okay. There's a lot of names. I'm sorry. 2 Kings chapter 14. Down in verse 23. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, that guy who got schooled before, the son of Joash, king of Judah, uh, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. All right, so we've got the new Jeroboam. He starts to reign, and he reigns for 41 years. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not out of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. So he's continuing on that pattern, worshiping the golden cows and all that jazz. But listen, he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath. Now, Hamath is a city way up in Syria. It says he restored the coast of Israel from way up there all the way down to the Sea of the Plains, another name for the, the Dead Sea. Okay? He had a massive territorial expansion. Whereas before, you'd have this constriction and constriction. You have here an expansion of Israel. All right? Um, According to the word that the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant, Jonah, the son of Amattiah. Y'all ever heard of Jonah, the son of Amattiah? Same guy. Okay? Getting your context for when Jonah written, Jonah was going to uh, plea against the capital of the Assyrian Empire, right? It's before Israel has gone into captivity. Okay? That's still way down the road. So here's when Jonah shows up here, and he's telling the king of Israel that he was going to have this time of conquering, and he did. Um, The prophet which the Lord had sent, for the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord... And the Lord said, not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all he did and his might and how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah, for Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Now we don't have the copies of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. But he had a very successful military reign. The Lord blessed him. For the Lord's sake, he didn't wipe him out, and he used him as a deliverer. Um, but that's, that's really the bulk of all we know about Jeroboam. Okay, so who's the other guy? we got the reign of Jeroboam, so he's in the north, Jeroboam the second, right? And then in the south, we've got Uzziah, or Amaziah. Okay, so if you go to 2 Kings... Chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, began Azariah, the son of Amaziah of Judah, to reign. All right, so just to keep you confused, there's two different spellings. Same guy, Azariah and Uzziah. Same guy. 
But notice, just for your keeping your timeline in your head, he doesn't start to reign until the 27th year of Jeroboam. We've got a gap. Um, what I forgot to mention about Azariah's dad is that he was killed in a conspiracy. Right? He had the, the idols that he took from Edom, you had this massive fallout, this massive loss of pride and face and your capital and your wall and your army. And some of his servants got upset and they killed him. Right? That was back in the 15th year of Jeroboam. So what happened in the 12 years? Well, this guy starts to reign when he's 16 years old. And so my guess is that you had this 12-year gap where you're waiting for the kid to grow up. And so you've kind of got this... Uh, unknown period. It doesn't talk about what happened there. It just says, this is how long that guy lived. This guy starts to reign here 12 years later. All right? So you can imagine being the four-year-old when your daddy's murdered, and then at 16, you're now responsible for the kingdom. Okay? And these are just normal folks, right? Nothing special about these humans just because they were in biblical times. This is, these are ordinary people, Okay? Sometimes we can kind of put them over, over there. Y'all met any 16-year-olds? Can you imagine them being put in that position where they have to reign? So 16-year-old was 16-year-old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Um, and he did that. This is the summary here in 2 Kings. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, Save or accept that the high places were not removed, but the people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. So this was a, a pattern that had been going on for many years. Um, and so it had become tradition that they would go up to tall mountains and they'd offer sacrifices up there. Did God tell them to do that? No. Once he established his temple, that was the only spot they were authorized. So you had the tabernacle back in the wilderness. Later when David uh, Solomon built the temple, this was the only spot you were supposed to do sacrifices. Um, but these folks got in their head, well, we've got these tall mountains. I'm closer to God. I'm going to do what I want. And so they've been doing it a really long time. And so uh, this king, uh, Uzziah, didn't try to change that. Right? It had been going on a long time. They continued. Say the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high place. And the Lord smote the king so that he was a leper under the day of his death. Oh, well, that sounds like there's a story there, right? King was smote with leper. Well, it doesn't tell us anything in Second Kings, and so we've got to go over Chronicles and figure out what did this guy do. Um, so he dwelt in a several house, so he's a hospital someplace apart. You can't have lepers among you. And uh, Jotham, his son, was over the house judging the people of the land. So his daddy was still technically king for a period of time, 52 years but he wasn't able to directly be before the people and judge them, and so his son was tasked with that job. All right, so go over to Second Second Chronicles, and I'm almost through laying the background work. Man, this is an awful lot. Well, there's a lot that goes on in history, and so we've got a little bit of information about this, and so we might as well take the time to look at it. So Second Chronicles chapter 26 is when the people took Uzziah, who's now 16, and made him the king in the room as a father. All right, let's, let's see what kind of reign he had. He had 52 years, this long reign. We know it ended in leprosy. He built Eloth, that's a city way towards the south, and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Okay? 
16 years old was Uzziah when he began to reign. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Got his mother's name. He did that which is right in the sight of the Lord, according to his father. And he sought to God in the days of Zechariah, who had the understanding of visions of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. That's an interesting little nugget. He sought to Zechariah. There's a book called Zechariah. Is it the same Zechariah? Nope. <laughs> you read Zechariah, it gets the context clues. It says, in the days of uh, Darius, that's a Persian king. That's going to be post-captivity. So, different Zacharias. So we've got to be careful with repeat names. But here it said that as long as he's seeking the Lord, the Lord made him to prosper. So, Uzziah, or Azariah, he went forth. He warred against the Philistines. All right, that's the people down there. Gath, Gaza, Ashdod, Echelon. Those are all their major cities. You don't know any famous Philistines, boys? Goliath, right? No, you don't, David? Okay. Goliath, he was the Philistines. They're down there. What we know today is the Gaza Strip. Okay. That's the Philistines. And so he went and fought them. He went and broke down the wall of Gath. Is that a pretty good sign that he won that battle? That's pretty sound in her feet. He, he broke down the wall of Gath and Jabneth and Ashdod and built cities about Ashdod and among the Philistines. So not only did he go in and whoop them once and break down their city, he built some occupying cities there. Hey, we got our outpost. You know, try us. We're, 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 we're over you. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians that dwelt in Jubal and the Munims. And the Ammonites gave gift unto uh, Uzzah. So Ammonites are going to be, so you've got Syria up here. Ammonites are going to be just a little bit lower to the uh, northeast. Okay, Ammonites, they gave him gifts. His name spread abroad even to the entering of Egypt, for he was exceedingly, uh, for he strengthened himself exceedingly. So he had another large reign, right, all the way down to Egypt. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem. So his daddy, what happened with the walls? Two football fields worth were torn down. So he's not only rebuilt the walls, he's putting some massive towers on it. Um, if you look in Josephus, he was a, a, a Jewish historian um, and shortly after the period of Jesus. He would give some additional details in this and kind of gets into Jewish tradition, and so don't take it with you know absolute scripture. But I think he was saying it was like 150 cubits tall, like big old towers. Later we'd see that he's going to put war engines up there, like the big ballistas and catapults and stuff. And this is no small feat that he's working on. So he built these towers uh, at the corner gate and the valley of the gate and at the turning of the wall and fortified them. And he built towers in the desert. So he's got these outposts out there, really strong. He's digging wells. Um, he had much cattle, both in low country and in the plains. Husbandmen also. Vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved husbandry. Does this sound like a pretty profitable time? Pretty wealthy time. Things are going pretty well. Moreover, Uzziah had a host of fighting men, and they went out to war by bands. So the bands, that's not like your full army. That's more like a, a raiding party. You know, kind of like what the Vikings did. They went out and they would take stuff. Right, so your band's going out. All right, and he says who he's under, um, and he had 307,000 men. All right, and he, he, he equipped them well. He gave them what they needed. They had shields and spears, I mean, 14, helmets and habergens, there's your, your coat of mail, right? bows and slings to cast stones. And he made in Jerusalem, so we're talking about those towers, he made in Jerusalem's engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks, so your, your fortifications on your wall, to shoot arrows and great stones. I don't know if you ever played Age of Empires as a kid, but you have those big, big arrow things that are shooting. The arrow there is the same word they use to describe the uh, the shaft of a spear. This ain't no little arrow. All right. So very cunning. So he he 
He was, he was strong, right? But when he was strong, his name spread far, and he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Verse 16, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. Pride, right? Like Nebuchadnezzar. Right? He's lifted up, for he transgressed against the Lord and went in the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, there was a little altar that was just for burning incense, and who was authorized to burn on that? Just the priest, no one else. But he took it upon himself that, you know, got this great king, got this powerful reign or whatever. I want to do something else. I'm going to go burn incense to God. Now, you could justify yourself. Well, I'm trying to, to please God. Well, he wasn't doing what God told him to. Right? And Which is better, to sacrifice or to obey? God makes it pretty clear. He prefers obedience dramatically. And so the priests, boldly, there's 80 of them. They stand up and say, King, you can't be here. You need to get out. And he gets really angry because kings don't like to be told no. Right? And while they're arguing about it, there's a dot of leprosy that shows up in the king's forehead. And then it starts to spread. And the, it says the priest, they thrust him out. And when he discovered what was going on, he ran out too. Right? Now, when exactly this occurred, I don't know. But I would suspect it's towards the end of his reign because his son has to be old enough to judge the people in his stead. And so he would be a leper until the day of his death dwelling in the uh, several house or the hospital where he was cut off from the house of the Lord and Jotham his son was over the king's house judging the people. All right, so he slept with his fathers and that's, that's our backstory on Uzziah and Jeroboam. Okay. So go back to Amos. Amos 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel... In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash in Israel. So, on our great timeline in our head, there's only about 14 years of overlap. So, we've narrowed it down pretty dramatically of when this is, when those two men are both reigning at the same time. Now, it says it's two years uh, before the earthquake, so this would lead me to believe it's written after the earthquake. Um, we don't have a whole lot of information about that earthquake. We'll talk about that in a minute. So as I'm looking at context, how do, I, how do I study modern prophets? I start with the kings. Why? Because I've got the most information about the kings. And that kind of builds up where, what's going on in the nations. What's the contemporary events? What is that prophet being sent to react to? Because more often than not, God's sending that prophet with a particular message that needs to be given to those people right then. Well, we need to know what it was about. Okay? So that's where I start. Start on the kings. What else do I start with? I start trying to see who are this prophet's peers. What do I mean by that? It's like, what are the other prophets that are near in time? So if you look um, at Isaiah, he is prophesying between Uzziah's reign and then the king after him of Jotham and the king after him of Aphaz and the king after him of Hezekiah. You've got about 113 years over Isaiah's period that he's prophesying. Now, is he alive and doing it that whole time from the very first moment that Uzziah was reigning? I don't know. Seems unlikely. But you've got another guy, um, Hosea, who mentions specifically that he's reigning over most of those kings too, but also during the period of Jeroboam. So you know that you can look at Hosea and Amos and know that those are written around the same time period or dealing with the same things that they were prophesying at the same time. We talked about Jonah. We know when Jonah's roughly at it. He's alive and prophesying during the period of Jeroboam's reign. Now, Jeroboam is still quite a few years before um, Israel goes into captivity. 
All right. So, the earthquake. I can only find one other reference to this earthquake. That's in Zechariah chapter 14. All right. Second to last book of the Old Testament. And it's smack in the middle of this uh, prophecy of the, the day that's going to come. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and they spoil and shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravaged, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations against whom he fought in the day of battle. His feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a great, very great valley. And half the mountain shall be removed towards the north, and half of it towards the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Aziel. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light, and it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea, half of them towards the hinder sea, in summer and in winter shall it be, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day there shall be one Lord, and his name is one. Can I tell you exactly what's going on in all that right now? No, I cannot. I see patterns here of looking at the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. I see uh, imagery that could point to the Lord coming back himself, the living waters. Jesus referenced that when he was talking to the woman in the well, that he had the living waters, right? So there's a lot going on there, but the one reference that we're looking at for our purposes today is that there's going to become a fleeing of the people as the same way that they would flee before this earthquake that happened back in the days of Uzziah. So this is the only two. Those are the only two nuggets I've got. Does that shed a whole lot of light? No. But it's worth doing our diligence of seeing well, what can we what can we glean from this? All right, y'all still with me? Still awake? Kind. Of. All right. So let's look let's look at Amos. That's that's my background of where are we at? How where is Amos coming into play? We got the king of Jeroboam, bad king, following the original Jeroboam's plan of idolatry, um, but the Lord had blessed him with a massive expansion of his kingdom, and then you've got Uzziah. Good king, up until the end where he makes some serious mistakes with the leprosy thing, but that probably hasn't taken place yet because the period of overlap is the very end of Jeroboam's reign and the very beginning of Uzziah's reign. Okay, so he's still young and in that strengthening period. Okay, So this is what Amos says. Now, Amos was not a professional prophet. He was a cattleman. Right? I don't know if he was a member of the association or not, but he was, he was a cattleman. And when he wasn't herding cattle, he was picking figs. Okay, so he was what you describe as a rustic or whatever you want to say, that he was called out from where he was and sent with a specific message. Now, Tekoa, it looks like there's a city, Tekoa, south of Bethlehem. All right? So most likely he lived in Judah. Um, so God called him from where he was, tending his cattle and picking figs down in Judah to go north and, and give these words against the nation of Israel. All right? So here's where it says. What were the words? He said, 
The Lord will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Okay, Carmel is that mountain, remember, where Elijah um, called down fire and burned up um, the sacrifice and the stone and the water. It's Mount Carmel. All right, that's up in Israel's territory. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to wither. The habitations of the shepherds shall mourn. There's, there's, there's trouble coming. Okay, let's put it shortly. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, all right, Damascus is the capital of Syria. So he is going to start by going through a list of the nations around Israel and Judah and declaring some judgment against them. So for three transgressions, this punishment's coming. For the fourth, I'm not going to relent. Okay? So three strikes and you're out. And for fourth, I'm not going to delay. Right? It's coming. Three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with instruments of iron. And there's going to be a pattern as we're looking at these um, punishments of what did each of those nations do is that they harmed God's people. They went after God's people, and God is going to take care of it. New Testament, we talk about uh, the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Your role and my role is not to defend ourselves against every injustice here. He's going to take care of it. He will defend his people in his good time. So here you've got, uh, they threshed Gilead with instruments of iron. Gilead's a region in north of Israel. And threshing with them with instruments of iron, I mean, that's, they, they killed them. They, they tortured them. It was, it was bad. But I will send fire unto the house of Haziel, which devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Remember Haziel, the guy who killed Ben-Hadad, now his son is reigning. I will break also the bar of Damascus. All right, The bar, that's a reference to that big bar that goes on the gate. All right? If the bar on the gate's not there, what happens? Hoshes come in, right? It's a massive weakening of your defense. I'll break off the bar of Damascus, cut off the inhabitants from the plain, and from him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden, the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Ker, saith the Lord. All right? That whole expansion. So from the cities to the plains to the rulers, everybody in Syria is going to go into captivity into Ker. You know where Ker is? That's a city in Assyria. So this is 90-something years before the the Assyrian Empire would rapidly grow and take over most of the known world at this point. He's saying, God's saying, it's going to happen. Everybody in Syria, you're knowing in advance, and it's because of how you treated my people, you're going to go. You're going to go into captivity. So sometimes we talk about captivity, we just think about Israel, we just think about Judah, but there there was a wider use of that by God. Okay? To these others. So, got Syria... Next, you got verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza. Gaza, a city in the Philistines. Gaza, for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because thou carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them unto Edom. I will send fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof. I'll cut off the inhabitants from Ashtab, another Philistine city, from him that holdeth the scepter of Ashtab, king and powerful. I will turn my hand against Ekron, another city of the Philistines, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord. All right? He's going to wipe them out. The Philistines will come to an end. Now, this reference to when they carried away the whole captivity captive and delivered them up unto Edom, I'm not exactly sure what that event's talking to. There are times the Philistines came in and when they took captives, there's times 
Um, but there, there wasn't a connection, at least before this, where they'd given them over to Edom. And there are commentators who argue about it. So what exactly is? I don't know. At least not beforehand. But I know that after the fact, when you've got Israel has already gone into captivity and then it's Judah's turn, Edom was very happy about this. They're like jumping up and down. Look, they're getting whooped. They're getting captured. Hey, you're trying to flee? I'm going to grab you and turn you over. They go to the crossroads and position themselves like, you can't get by us, right? And so I think that was uh, what's probably being referenced here is something that's written in past tense, but it hasn't happened yet. You see that in the book of Isaiah a lot, that he would write things and so sure it's going to happen. He wrote it in past tense, but it was like the destruction of the temple. It had not happened yet, but it, it would. Okay, and so you've got the judgment against the Philistines. So if you're looking at your map, you've got northeast with Syria, southwest with the Philistines. Thus saith, for three transgressions of four of Tyrus, that's on the coast northwest, I will not turn away. Why? They delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. There was a covenant between David and the king of Tyrus and Solomon, and they were friends. And here it says that they betrayed God's people um, specifically and gave them into Edom's, Edom's hand, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. For three transgressions of Edom, talk about Edom itself, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. Okay. I will send fire upon Timon, city in Edom, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Okay. So we got the Edomites, that's to the south. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, that would be north and east. If you've got a map in the back of your Bible, it really helps kind of keep track of where we're at. So the Ammonites, same thing. Uh, for they ripped up the children, the women with child and Gilead, that they might enlarge their borders. So you've got these massive uh, you know, crimes against you know, humanity, one way to describe it, but they're they're you know, assaulting and, and ripping up pregnant women because they wanted to have a little bit larger territory. Um, and so the Lord's going to punish them. I'll kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, that's their capital. It shall devour the palaces thereof, and shout it in the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, saith the Lord. So you're going to have this Syrian army, an empire that's going to take them all. Okay? And at the height of it, there's only one little pocket that's not conquered, and that's Jerusalem itself. And that's when you get the story about Sennacherib, you know, when God sends down the angel and kills the 185,000 men in one night. That's because there's one little pocket that's not captured, and that's the area around Jerusalem. They took the rest of Judah. They took all of Israel and the Syrians and the Ammonites and the Philistines all the way down to Egypt, but that one little spot. Okay, and so this is God declaring that that's going to happen, and here's why in nearly 100 years beforehand. Okay? Everybody still with me? Chapter 2. Alright, so we're still going through. For three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not turn away the punishment. Well, what did Moab do? He burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. When that happened, Scripture doesn't say, but God was displeased. Um, and so for that, I'll send a power, a fire upon Moab. It shall deliver the palaces the palace, their capital, Kiroth, and Moab shall die with the tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. I'll cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and will slay all the princes thereof with him. All right, so those are all the enemies. Now he's going to shift focus a little bit, and he's going to look at his own people. 
chapter 2 and verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Why? Because they have despised the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord wasn't getting, given to anyone else. I was give, It was given to Israel and to Judah. They've despised it and have not kept the commandments and their lies have caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. Okay? Their crimes are against God himself. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. So even though this prophecy was primarily directed towards Israel, Judah's included in here. And this is alluding to when the Babylonian Empire would ultimately take them, conquer them, burn the temple, and destroy it. All right. And then it shifts to its primary focus in Israel. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, turn aside the way of the meek, and a man and his father will go into the same maid to profane my holy name. So let's just start back up. You've got this period of great wealth and expansion, and how are they treating the poor within their own country. They're selling them into slavery. And not for a lot of money either. They sold the righteous for silver, for the poor, for a pair of shoes. I can't imagine shoes cost that much. But you're selling a man into slavery, a woman for that. So they're not showing mercy. They're not showing justice. And here they're saying they, they pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. So Imagine those who've got all this, and you've got the poor little man. Everything he has is described as being so small. It's kind of like the dust that's just hanging on your head. Like that's, that's all his, and they want that. And they're consuming the poor, and so you can imagine them taking advantage, and later see how badly they do it when they're um, uh, using scales that aren't balanced, right? So you're getting less than you pay for, and you've got to pay more money than you get, and you're getting into debt to where I can take all your stuff, and eventually I can sell you in slavery, and I'm getting everything and everything and everything for myself. They're operating with injustice, without equity, without righteousness. All right? So they are mistreating God's people within their own land, all right, for their covetousness. And it says, you know, then you've got the gross fornication, the man and his and man and his father going into the same maid, and that's the result of that. They profane God's holy name. They're supposed to be a holy people, set apart, not engaging in the fornication of those who are around them, but they're they're defiling his name by doing that. They lay themselves down upon the clothes laid to pledge by every altar. This idea of I'm gonna loan you some money, but I don't trust you to give it back, so give me your shirt. Alright, now under the law. For the poor man, all he had was his clothing. I had to give it back to him at nightfall. All right? That way he would not be cold and he wouldn't be crying out to God for vengeance. It says, here, you've got all those pledges just strewn out behind all these false gods and these altars that they're burning out. It says, you're just, just rampantly doing this. You're taking advantage and you're abusing those um, that are poor and weak, laid to pledge by every altar. They drink wine of the condemned in the house of their God. All right? So they're um, the wine of the condemned, those who have, they've, they've taken and they've fined them. That's what the idea there is. Those that they, they're extorting and they're gathering, they're just doing everything they can to wring out from those that are weak, those who couldn't defend themselves, and the house of their God. And then they're engaging in idolatry in the process. 
says, Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the cedars. So before Israel and Canaan came in the days of Joshua, they had giants to fight, right? So much so that they were scared, right? They're like, We're like grasshoppers in our fight in our in our eyes to these dudes. We don't want to fight them. They got tall walls. And that was why they had to go wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they were afraid to obey. They didn't think God would deliver them. But he did. He says, but I delivered, I destroyed the Amorite before them. Uh, he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots beneath. He completely wiped them out. And I brought you up from the lands of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the lands of Amorite. And I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? And you can go back at the law. And he set up the concept of a Nazarite. This is someone who, for a period of time, they're going to dedicate themselves to the service of the Lord. They're not going to drink wine. They're not going to cut their hair. There's kind of all these things that they're agreeing to do. And that was setting aside time of their God's servant there. And what what are these people now doing? You've got someone who's given themselves to be a Nazarite. Verse 12, it says, But ye give the Nazarites wine to drink. You're intentionally doing the opposite of what I said. And he's got that raise up prophets coming and teaching the teaching the word, um, and you're commanding the prophets saying, "Prophesy not." All right. So these are people who God's called and delivered to put in into this nation, and in every way imaginable, they're rejecting Him. They're not following His commands. They're doing it their own way. They're serving themselves. They're trying to um, just use and abuse everything for their own gain. All right. And God basically says, I've had enough. I've, I've had it up to here. I'm, I'm, I am pressed under you as a cart that is pressed full of sheaves. All right, is, there, is there a weight limit on your hay wagon? Is there so much before the waxels and just the things collapse? Right? God says, I've had it up to here. I'm pressed full. Right? I ain't going to take it anymore. All right? He says, here's what's going to happen. Therefore, the flight shall perish from the swift. Oh, you think you're fast? You won't be able to run fast enough. And the strong shall not strengthen themselves. Oh, you've got folks who work for you. They're big and burly. You can't strengthen yourself enough for what's coming. Neither shall the mighty. You're valiant. You're brave. You can fight really well. It ain't enough. Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow. All right, you got a bow. you got the long distance. You can defend yourself. Nope, not enough. He that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. He that rideth the horse. Neither he that rideth the horse. There is no escape for what's coming. God's had it up to here, and it's coming. So don't don't take stock at anything you think. Well, I'm going to be the exception. He's like, nope, you won't be able to. He that is courageous among the mighty, even your most bravest guy, he's going to run away that day naked, just completely ashamed, leaving his clothes, just that scared. Think God's kind of displeased? Think it's coming? Think there's escape? No, he's, he's made pretty clear. All right. Hmm. My watch says I got about five more minutes till y'all start looking at your watches. <laughs> we have an afternoon service. Let's see if we can't get through chapter three, and then maybe we'll pause and come back and keep going. All right? Because I, I think this is best one that's consumed in short order. Because you don't want me to go over that context again. Because you'll forget. All right. So, you've laid out, we've laid out the prophecy that Amos came and delivered against all the nations around, and then Israel directly and Judah directly. 
Verse chapter 3 says, Hear this word which the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. You think he's just talking about the northern kingdom here? That sounds pretty expansive to me. The whole family. I'm bringing it against you. There's a word. Ye only have I known of all the families in the earth. Therefore will I punish you for all your iniquities. He's holding them to a standard. He chose them. He knew them. I'm going to punish you. All right? And then he asked a series of questions. Okay? And before now, this may be the only verse that you've ever heard of, of Amos. Can two walk together except they be agreed? All right, you've heard that. Right? Sometimes you think about, well, you know, we have to be on the same page. Well, you ever tried to coordinate going for a walk with somebody? You've got to know where you're going, where you're starting from, what time you're going. How are you going to meet up? Otherwise, your paths won't cross at all. There's a lot of information that has to be conveyed, and you've got to be on the same page in all of it. All right? So the, the question is simple. Can two walk together except they be agreed? The answer is no. Okay? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath taken no prey? So if you are out ready trying to hunt the prey, are you going to give away your position? No. You've got to know. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he's taken nothing? Answer again, no. Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is set up for him? And so I had to learn a little bit about this. The snare, that's, that's like the netting. All right, so you got the people who bought and sold the doves and the sparrows. You know, they're, they're not very expensive, right? But somebody had to catch them. They wanted them alive. Well, apparently the gin is kind of like a little horsehair snare, and it was a non-lethal snare. And they get in there, and it'd hold them, and then the guy would come with a net and toss it over well, are you going to be able to toss a net over a bird which is not being held by the snare? No. So the answer again is, is no. Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have nothing in it at all, all right? If you've got a snare sitting there, are you going to take it up before you count something? Well, you pick it up after it's got something, all right? So the answer to all these is no. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Now, this is not a trumpet like in the day of Jubilee. This is like the trumpet of, we under attack, right? This is a trumpet of alarm. If you hear that, y'all ever heard a tornado siren go off? Even on Wednesday when they're testing it, does it still make you a little jumpy? Yeah. Okay, that's the idea. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Okay. Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord hath not done it? Now, don't be confused here. The evil is not the same word as sin. Okay, this is not saying God is the author of sin. Here it's saying that if there's trouble, if there's affliction, you better recognize that the Lord's involved in it. Shall there be trouble in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. And he says, and he's going to do this, he's going to tell his prophets, so you know it's him. Why? So you don't accidentally, or on purpose, ascribe something to your false god. So he sends his prophets to make sure it's painfully clear what he's doing. The lion that roareth, who will not fear? Now imagine going on an African safari and the jeep breaks down and you've got to walk home. I'm sure they made a whole movie about this. And you hear a lion roaring. What's going to happen to the back of your neck? <laughs> and you'll stand up and sweat's going to start pouring and you'll start walking a little bit faster. Right? Well, it's going to happen. The lion hath roared and who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken. Who can but prophesy? It's the same way that you have that instant of fear when you hear that lion's roar it says the same thing with a prophet if the lord tells him to prophesy 
Buddy, you better prophesy, and you will. Okay? And it gets into that idea of how uh, wrong it was for Israel to be telling these prophets, you just need to hush. You're not saying things we want to hear. Just be quiet, boy. Right? You're going against exactly what God was telling them to do. You're telling them to sin against God. So who can but prophesy? Publish it in the palaces at Ashdod, Philistines, in the palaces of the land of Egypt, don't know where that is, and say, Assemble yourself upon the mountains of Samaria, and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right. This is a description of God's own people saying, They know not to do right, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. That's a pretty foul description. Therefore thus saith the Lord, An adversary shall be even round about the land. He shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Okay? As for the Israelites, that's going to be the Assyrian Empire. When you're talking about, talking about the whole family, it's going to be capturing everybody when you get to the Babylonian Empire. Thus saith the Lord, As the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of ear... So shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. All right, Zach, so if, uh, I don't know, we don't have lions. How about a bear? A bear wanders up from Florida and he's got one of your cows and you're playing tug of war with it. You get a leg or an ear, right? You have your whole cow? No, just a little piece of it, right? He's saying that's going to be the end result of this. Is there's going to be a massive diminishing, the same way that you're playing tug of war with that animal. You get a little bit of that. You got you got the left ear and the hind foot or something, but the rest of it is going to die. That's what's going to happen with the captivity here. All right, hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God of hosts, that in the day I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will visit the altars of Bethel. Boys, what does Bethel mean? House of God. House of God, right? Bethel was that spot where Jacob had his night vision where he's using a pillow for a stone. He saw the ladder going up and down, angels ascending and descending. And later, they would set up the altar with this false cow. Here, They'd have the, the cow that they're worshiping and they'd have altars. He says, I will visit them and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And those horns are often used as a symbol of power. So I'm going to cut off your power completely, and they will fall to the ground. All right. And we will pause there, have some sustenance, and we'll pick back up in the afternoon. All blessed. Amen. All right. So we are up to chapter 4. All right. We're going to start with some insults. Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan. I'll ever heard the term fat cats. You basically call them fat cows. Alright? You cows of Bashan. Now, Bashan is a very um, good pasture land. This is where um, Reuben and the half tribe of Manasseh and all them, they, they have this wonderful land. They, this is great for cattle. Um, we'll just take our inheritance on the far side of Jordan. And so this is saying that you, you're not just cows. You're like the fattest cows. Like you've got the best of the best. So there's a word particularly against this, which are in the mount, in mountain of Samaria. All right, so you've got 
It's addressed to the rich, to the rich and powerful there in Samaria. And what are they doing? Which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. So here you've got an illustration, a word picture for how they're treating the poor. It's like you're taking them as clusters of grapes. You're squishing them out and making wine out of them. You're drinking up the poor. You're using them and oppressing them that violently. Okay? Is that what some people refer to it as the bulls of Bashan? That's right. The bulls of Bashan. Those that are strong in this world stuff. David had many uh, bulls of Bashan who wanted to kill him right, in the Psalms. Good question. All right. Verse 2. The Lord God hath sworn by his holiness that, lo, the days shall come upon you. All right, so first off, the Lord swear, sworn something. He's swearing by his own holiness. Is this going to happen? You better believe it. That the days shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. That doesn't sound real pleasant. Right, you're going to be taken away. It's going to be uh, painful in the process. And ye shall go out at the breaches, every cow at which is before her, and ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. So you can envision the city of Samaria, talking about the rich people there, being surrounded, the walls are breaking up, and everybody's just scattering like rats. If you've got a breach in the wall here, I'm fleeing, I'm fleeing, I'm fleeing. And some of them are going to go try and hide in a place of refuge like the palace. So you've got some fleeing, some trying to take refuge uh, is anybody going to get away? Not a lick. All right? And then it's going to get... I would say this is a touch ironic in the tone. But you'll see what I mean. Come to Bethel and transgress. Bethel is one of those two major holy sites. Holy sites where they had their cow. Right? And then also they had at Gilgal, which was one of the major high places. So, I mean, imagine... You've got a, a high place over here with the altar. People like to go. Well, there's some other ones that are like in the ranking of prestigious. Gilgal was one of them. Now, this is a terrible irony because Gilgal was the first place when they came into the land off Jordan, across Jordan. Right before, no, they didn't destroy it. This is the first place they camped. Okay, So Joshua's leading them in. They go, they camp at Gilgal. And you know what they reinstituted there? The practice of circumcision. <laughs> Yeah, so they had to stay there and, and healed because they hadn't done that while they were in the wilderness for four years. And so the name of the Gilgal is referring to the fact that the Lord had rolled away their reproach. And so this spot where they had you know, reaffirmed that they are holy people and God's people, they are now using it to disobey God. Okay, so Bethel, house of God, has now been defiled for this false god. Gilgal, where your approach was rolled away, you're just heaping reproach upon yourself and upon God. So come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply your transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Now, are you supposed to offer, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven? No. Everything he's saying is that your shows of worship, they're not pleasing to me. Okay? Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and publish the free offering. For this liketh you, O you children of Israel, saith the Lord God. So he's saying, go ahead and keep going. Keep doing your sorry shows of religion, your lip service to me. Um, just keep doing it. You're just going to heap reproach upon yourself. Your transgressions are just going to keep building, keep building. Just have at it. Okay? Why? 
He's going to list out all the ways he has attempted to get their attention, and they have not repented yet. Also, and I have, excuse me, and I also have given you cleanness of teeth. Now, what, when are your teeth clean? If you've brushed them or if you've got no food. Cleanness of teeth is an expression that says you've got a famine going on. You don't have to worry about your teeth getting messed up because there's nothing to eat. He says, I've given you famines in the past. In all your cities and the want of bread in all your places, yet ye have not returned unto me. Remember that expression. You're going to see it throughout the rest of this chapter. Yet ye have not returned unto me. So this is things he's already done, and they chose not to repent, not to turn. So he'd send a famine. Next, I have withhold the rain from you. That when there are yet three months to harvest, I cause it to rain in one city and cause it not to rain in another. Um, and so one piece was rained upon, and the place where it rained not withered, so that two or three cities would wander to one to drink water, but they were not satisfied. So he said, I sent a limitation of the rain. I'd send some over here, and y'all all have to get together, and there wasn't enough for everybody. But ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Next, he said, I have smitten you with blastings and mildew. Okay, so I sent... Uh, diseases among your crops, pestilences, um, your gardens and your vineyards for your wine, your grapes grow for your wine, your fig trees, your palm, your excuse me, your not palm, your olive trees, they increased, and the palm worm devoured them. Yet have I not, you not returned unto me? So he's like, I've sent not only famine, not only have I sent limitation of the rain and drought. I've sent specific bugs and parasites and mildew and things to get your attention, and you have still not returned unto me. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Okay? Uh, the pestilence could be the moraines, the things that people got sick, or it could be a generic term referring to all these things that are going on. Um, after the manner of Egypt, your young men have I slain with the sword. And I've taken away your horses. So where the list is going on, the pestilence, the young men have slain with the sword. I've taken away your horses. I have made the stink of your camps to come up into your nostril. All right, so you've got your army out. You're out, you know, in your camp. And there's so many dead bodies that it just reeks. I drove past Earl's the other day, and they got rotten melons out there. It just reeks. But that ain't near as bad as having a camp full of dead bodies. Okay, so it all just reeks. You can smell it. It's it's It's... Not visceral, but you know, there's 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 a tangible, you know, effect. And yet, ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Says I have overthrown some of some of you, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So Sodom and Gomorrah, those two cities were completely wiped out. He says I've overthrown some of you in that same manner, and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. So this is all the because 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 because. Here's what's going to happen. Therefore, you go ahead and continue your transgressions. Just keep multiplying them. I've already done all these steps, and you haven't returned. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel. And because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Now, if you read John Gill, he thinks this is a positive expression. Like John Gill, he, he's got a lot of good stuff. I heartily disagree with him here. I don't think there's a lick of this. This is positive. He said, well, you're going to meet God and, and Jesus. The context of this before is all the woe that's because of what's happened before and what comes after is woe after. I think this is woe. I think prepare to meet your God. He's going to kill you. 
you have not repented, so prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. You're going to meet him in a way that you have not yet been willing to contemplate. For lo, he that formed the mountains and created the wind and declareth unto man what is his thought, does that through prophets or through scripture, that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Y'all are ignorant. You're worshiping this molten cow? You're going to meet the real thing, the one who created everything. He is the one who controls the wind. He declares uh, his thoughts unto man and makes the morning darkness. He treads upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, Jehovah, the God, Elohim, of hosts is his name, the God of armies, God of hosts. He's got all the power. He is the eternal God. This is the real God, and you're going to meet him. Okay, chapter 5. Hear ye this word which I take up against you, a lamentation. It could also be described as a dirge. Those are sad songs, but also the expression of beating upon the breast. It is just, it is a, this is a woeful thing. A lamentation against the house of Israel. Generally, you lament because somebody died. Here we're lamenting in advance because you were about to die. It's about to get real bad. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken in her land. There is none to rise her up, raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred. That which went out by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. All right, math folks. What percentage is going to be left over? Mm-hmm. Here's your math lesson. Carla was talking about doing math with the Bible. Here's a good example. You have a thousand, you're going to come back with only a hundred left over. That's a 90% casualty rate. hundred come back with ten. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek me, seek ye me, and ye shall live. Is this captivity and the hardship going to come? Absolutely. Is it going to be stopped? Not a chance. But he's still giving direction to his people within the house of Israel to seek me and ye shall live. Seek not to Bethel. Don't go worship that false cow. Don't go to Gilgal where you got that high place. Nor unto Beersheba. um, For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity and Bethel shall come to naught. But... Seek the Lord. Don't do the shows of religion anymore. Don't do the tradition of the man. Seek the real. Seek the Lord. And you shall live. Lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph. And remember, Ephraim uh, and Joseph is another names to reference for the northern kingdom. Okay? Uh, house break, uh, fire break out in the house of Joseph and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Ye, all right, again, we're talking about what do they do? Ye who turn judgment into wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth. All right, so God in what Micah 6 8 told us to what? You have shown thee, O man, what is good, but to love mercy. I, I'm struggling to remember, so y'all help me out. Shown thee, O man, what is good, what doth the world require thee? To show mercy and to love judgment and to walk humbly with like anyway. The idea <laughs> forgive my brain just going silent there. 
um, that doing judgment and righteously is important for us. And he's saying that rather than taking matters and doing the right thing, he says you've turned them into poison. That's what wormwood is. It's just poison. And you've left off righteousness in the earth. All this was directed among those fat cows, right? What do you need to do? You need to seek him that made, and there's a reference to the seven stars. Apparently that refers to the star uh, cluster called Pleiades. Um, he made the seven stars and Orion. So you see Orion's belt, the constellation there. He said, seek him that made those. Don't seek the stars themselves, but seek the one who made them. And turneth the shadow of death into morning, and maketh the day dark with night, that calleth upon the waters, that calleth the waters of the sea, that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is name. What's, what's that referring to, Connor? That's the water cycle, right? How God takes the water that's in the ocean, he causes it to evaporate and dumps back down on the sea. He's the one who's doing that. He says, that's who you're calling to, the God who made it all and sustains it all and runs it all. That's who you call. The Lord is his name, not, not in Bethel, not your little cow, not any of your other false gods. The Lord is his name. He that strengtheneth, strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. All right, so this is another word picture. The spoiled are those who got whooped. All right, they're the ones who lost and had all their stuff taken. He says, God's the one who can strengthen those so much that they'll go and they'll attack the fortified position of the strong guy. All right, naturally, you can't do that. But with God, he certainly can. Okay? He that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress of the strong. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Are you going to be popular for doing the right thing, for speaking the right thing, for speaking righteousness, for rebuking when necessary when someone's being unrighteous, unjust? You won't. You'll be hated and abhorred. Do it anyway. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor. So, again, we talked about the poor, like being grapes there. Now you imagine those grapes that have been put into the wine vat and someone's stomping them to get every last drop out of them. For as much, then, as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone. He said, so you have gathered and you have abused the Lord's poor, and you've built yourself these fancy uh, stone houses. He says, you ain't going to stay in them. All right. You built houses of stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards. You got nice, nice vineyards for wine, and you shall not drink of the wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe. They turn aside the poor in the gate from the right. Now, when it says in the gate, that the gate is often the location where it's kind of like the local courthouse. Like that's where matters was decided. You go to the gate, you had the elders there, and they would decide who's right and wrong. And so if you're there in the gate and the poor comes up and you're the one saying, get out of here, we're not going to rule in his favor. You know, he, he can't be right. We're, we're bending the truth or whatever so that he's at a disadvantage. He says, I know about that. I know that you afflict the just, that you're causing woe on those who are serving me that you're willing to take a bribe. I mean, what, there's no worse indictment against a judge who's supposed to be impartial and give righteous judgment than the willingness to take a bribe because you're going to basically sell your decision. Okay? Therefore, the prudent shall keep silent in that time, for it is an evil time. So while you're keeping silent, it says, but seek good and not evil. 
that ye may live, so that the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as uh, ye have spoken. All right? So even within all the badness that's coming and the judgment that's been pronounced, he's still instructing his people to continue to seek him, continue to do the right thing, um, continue to, to take those hard stands, even if you're hated. Now, that's not saying that there's, there's not an element where you just need to keep your mouth shut. And we need to have discernment on that. Um, but continue to seek good and not evil, despite the rest of the culture doing that. Hate the evil, love the good. Establish judgment in the gate. So be the one who's making sure there's righteous judgment there. It may be, it may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. It's not saying to the whole house. Saying to the remnant, his few, his ones that are still continuing to serve him. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith, Wailing shall be in the streets, and they shall be in the highways. Alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as skillful of lamentation to wailing. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I shall pass through, saith the Lord. All right, can you think of any area where they haven't accomplished wailing? You're going to have wailing in the city. You're going to have wailing in the fields. You're going to have it in the vineyards. You're going to have it in the streets. It's going to be so bad that there's wailing everywhere. Okay, Even the husbandman, the guy who's supposed to be working in the field, we need, we need you to come in and participate in this wailing process because things are so bad. Okay, For I will pass through. The Lord said, I, I'm, I'm going to pass through. Prepare to meet that God. I will pass through. It's going to be, it's going to be bad. Now, there's a certain portion of that population that was kind of looking forward to the day of visitation. And he calls them out here. He says, Woe! Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Now, here he's talking to to the wicked, the ones who are giving lip service to religion. He says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Remember when Jesus was saying there'd be a separation where he would cast off you know, his sheep and his goats. And there'd be some who'd come up to him and say, Lord, we did many wonderful works in your name. We, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, we, we were doing things in your name. And he said, depart from me. I never knew you. That day of visitation, that final day, there's no good in it for him. Okay? It's a day of darkness and not of light. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? I hate, this is the Lord speaking, I hate. I despise your feast days. I will not smell your solemn assemblies. There's many um, illustrations in uh, the law about how them obeying God's command resulted in there being a sweet-smelling savor. Um, He says, what you're doing, I hate it. Your little sorry pretense of lip service to religion. You say you're serving me. Okay, well, really, you're serving this cow over here. You say you're serving me, but you're destroying and oppressing my people. I don't want it. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beast. Okay, you're wealthy. You're offering good stuff. I don't care. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. I think that's Kind of like a lyre, stringed instrument. But let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. And the mighty stream, Strong said something about uh, like a winter torrent. Um, so imagine the snow melt and things are just kind of rushing along 
of that's the illustration, your word picture of it. Judgment comes down, it's just going to go and purge through. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O Israel? There's a question. Have you? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chinu, your images, the star of your God which ye made to yourselves. Therefore I therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now Damascus is in Syria. It's you know, Jason, he said, I'm going to send you to go in captivity beyond that. So when Israel goes into captivity, they're going to go much farther north up to Nineveh. Um, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and there'll be places around where they're put. One other, I don't know how to bring this in other than that, as I'm trying to study a minor prophet, as I'm looking at context from the kings, I'm looking at context from other prophets, the other things, I'm looking, where is this quoted in the New Testament? Where can I get additional information? Well, this passage right here is quoted directly in 742. There's a lot of indirect references from Amos, the same topics or whatever, but I'm focusing on just what is exactly being quoted. So go to Acts chapter 7 and in verse 42. This is in the defense that Stephen, the deacon, would give right before he's stoned to death. So he's given a history of Israel going back to Moses, right? And he gets up to where Aaron and them made the calf, right? I threw in the gold, and out came the calf, right? And they made a calf. This is uh, Acts 7, number 41. Offered sacrifice unto the idol, rejoiced the work of their hand. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. Host of heaven being the stars, the moon, the sun. He said God allowed them to worship those things. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel... Have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rimphan. So slightly different uh, name there, but referring to the same uh, false god. Figures which ye made to worship them. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. All right. So slightly different word there. It's saying I'll carry you on beyond Babylon. This one, um, back in Amos, it said Damascus, but you get the idea of how far they're going to be hauled away in their captivity. Now, Moloch, if you remember, is the, the false god that they offered children to. There was human sacrifices offered to them, so um, that would happen so much so that uh, they'd have a particular valley, Valley of Hinnom, where they would do that, and that um, corresponds to the, the Greek concept for the Greek word concept for the word uh, hell. It's the same illusion, a place of burning, and it's just um, so very, very foul stuff. But that's that's what Moloch was, and then you had Chinu, um, which had something to do with you know, a star. And so they've got this tabernacle that they're tailing around. They've got the star, this false gods. Um, he says, therefore, I will cause you to go into captivity. All right? So your lip service is buying you nothing. All right. <clears throat> Chapter 6. Woe to them that are at ease in, Jeru in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria. Now, Zion is another, uh, it's one of the mountains right by Jerusalem. And so this could be directed towards both the wealthy in uh, Judah and in Israel. Woe to them that are at ease, you know, relax, secure. And trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations 
to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Canel and see, go thence to Hamath the great, go down to Gath and the Philistines, be they better than these kingdoms, be they better than these kingdoms, or thy border greater than your border. So he's saying, look at these things, because these are all going to go away. They're all going to be um, washed out by the flood that the Assyrians would bring with their people. Ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near. So it's one of those, the consequences are far away. We don't even have to think about it. We're secure, but we're going to do what we want, regardless of who it hurts now. Okay, you've got the seed of violence to come near. And then it kind of gives this description for the luxury that they live in, that lie upon beds of ivory, that stretch them out upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the viol and invent to themselves instrument of music like David. So they're, 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 they're living their best life, right? They've got everything they want. They've got the best food. They've got the best entertainment. They're lounging on their couches that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments. But they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. So Joseph, again, being a reference to the northern kingdom, you've got all those afflictions that have come upon, and these people don't care. It didn't affect them. They've still got everything they need. Um, it says, Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves out shall be removed. Now, I don't have a scripture reference that I've found where that applies to the rich within Israel, but I do have one in Judah. When Babylon comes, there is multiple phases of the captivity. Well, the first phase is that the king surrenders all his family, everybody of wealth and notability, pretty much everybody but the poorest of the poor, they're taken in this first wave. And then they come back later. And so the, the wealthy there, they're all shipped off um, together. I think that's when this is fulfilled. Now, if that happened again in uh, Israel's time with the Assyrians, I, I haven't uh, found the reference to it yet. Okay. So the Lord God has sworn by himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor, I hate the excellency of Jacob. I hate his palaces. Therefore, will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. And it shall come to pass that if there remain ten men in one house... They shall die. All right. So our early ratio, we think there'd at least be one. Well, here it's going to be, if there's ten, they're all going to die. Well, who's going to bury them? It says, a man's uncle shall take him up, and he, sh and he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house, and shall say unto him that is by the side. So the neighbor's asking, is there any yet with thee? And he'll say, nope. So for your uncle to bury you, that means your daddy's dead, your sons are dead, all your brothers are dead. You've had to go up to the next generation um, to have somebody to come in and haul out your carcass and burn you. Because there's no time for you know fancy funerals and plugging anybody in the ground. It was just cleaning it up. And then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. So, you know, that uncle who's not dead yet, he might don't don't say anything about the Lord, about this hardship. Um, we don't want anything else coming down on our head. Um, just hold your peace. For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great houses with breaches and the little houses with clefts. So the clefts are the little fissures or cracks. Uh, the breaches, I imagine a wider um, thing, but the word actually means a, a dripping, so it's like it's melting. Okay, So he's, he's going to smite, and there's going to be pain, and there's going to be death and destruction, both for the great and for the little. 
And then he asked two more questions that we've um, seen the pattern for. Shall horses run upon the rock? Is it a good idea to take your horse at full gallop across Stone Mountain? Probably not. Right. Are you going to take your ox up there and start plowing either? No. For ye have turned judgment into gall and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Ye which rejoice in the thing of naught, which say, Have we taken... Have we not taken to ourselves for our own strength, taken to us horns by our own strength? I'm saying just as bad as it is to do that silly thing, don't run your horse on the stone, don't go plow on the stone. He's saying, y'all have done something just as dumb where you've taken judgment and you've turned it into gall and bitterness. You would never run your horse there. Well, you should never do that. The fruit of righteousness you've turned into hemlock, which again is another poison. That which is good and right and edifying, you've turned into something that's you know, putrid and deadly. Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught. That's all your, your pretend power, all your riches. You rejoice in a thing that's nothing. And say, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength, by our own power, by our own strength? We've now got power. And you're like, you're dumb. You, you know, you know. But behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamath under the river of the wilderness. Okay, so the northern reaches that Jeroboam got to, the entering in up there, it's from all the way up there. I'm going to get you all the way south down into to Judah, into the, wilder, the, the river of the wilderness, which exactly river that is, I don't know. Somewhere before you get to denial, um, the Nile, um, and there's several that it could be, but you just get the idea of the expansion, that he is going to take care of it, he's going to wipe the whole slate. All right. Chapter 7, Thus saith the Lord, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. All right, we're going to have a little shift here. Um, uh, Amos is going to see a series of visions. Thus saith the Lord God, excuse me, Thus hath the Lord God shown unto me, and behold, he formed the grasshopper when in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, and lo, it's the latter growth after the king's mowing. All right, so you've, you've got your hay field, you cut the first batch, and it goes to the king. You get the whatever grows up next, the latter growth. He says, that's when the, the grasshoppers are coming. All right, it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. And so you have this image of the grasshoppers coming in and, and wiping out um, the, the food or whatever it is growing. And Amos is asking the Lord um, you know, for deliverance, forgive them. And it says the Lord repented of this. He he sighed and said it shall not be. He wasn't. He didn't continue on with that. He paused it, and then the Lord God showed him something else. He called him. He said, "Behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire. So fire comes up. It devours the great deep, which is a reference to the ocean or sea, and did eat up a part. So there's a portion of it that was devoured by the fire. And I said, O Lord God, uh, cease. I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small." Or who shall deliver Jacob? And the Lord repented this again. Um, this, this also shall not be, saith the Lord. Then he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall uh, made by a plumb line, and with a plumb line in his hand. Y'all know what a plumb line is? All right, it's a string. You got a weight at the bottom, and it's basically to see is something upright and straight, or is it got a tilt or a lean to it? So the Lord's here on the wall, and he's seeing is this thing straight? Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people. And I will not again pass by them anymore. So those first two things, whatever exactly they refer to, some commentators say that's an allusion to 
the first king of Assyria coming put. He didn't do very much. He took a bribe and some money and went home. And then the next guy who came and took just a portion of it, which is the northern, um, and I can't say his name. It starts with a T. It's not that long. And then the last one being when uh, they came and, and conquered the whole land. But the first two, there was a pause. There was a, it didn't go any farther. Here we've got, I will not pass by again with this plumb line. All right? The high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Remember, Jeroboam is the king. All right? So you're a prophet. You're an out-of-towner. You're from down in Judah. You come up and you tell that the Lord is going to kill your king. How well do you think that go over? Not real smooth. Right? So then we're introduced to another person. His name is Amaziah. He was a priest of Bethel. Remember the place where you got that golden cow? He said, he goes and he talks to the king. He said, you know what Amaziah is saying? He's conspiring against you in the midst of the house of Israel. He's come up here and he's conspiring against you. And the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amaziah saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. And Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. And so what does Amaziah do to Amos? He turns to him and says, Amos, O thou seer. That's, that's the term for a prophet. He says, I understand you're speaking for God, but go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there. But prophesy not again anymore in Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, it's the king's sanctuary, it's the king's holy place. It is the king's court. Then answered Amaziah to... Then answered Amos to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman, a guy who tending cattle, and a gatherer of the sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, Prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Israel. He's going to give a personal prophecy just for the priest here. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be a harlot in the city. That's bad. Thy son and thy daughter shall fall by the sword. That's bad. Thy land shall be divided by line. Now, I'm not sure if that's the priest or Israel in general, but either way, it's bad. And thou shalt die in a polluted land. You won't die here in the, the holy land that the Lord has set apart. He's going to take you out to where the heathens are at, and you'll die there. And Israel shall surely go forth into captivity of his land. Go into captivity forth of his land. So, you know, in the New Testament, when they talk about praying to be able to speak boldly, that's pretty boldly. I mean, if the Lord speaks, who can but prophesy? I mean, he was delivering the message that he was sent this guy's telling him to hush, and you know, I, I cannot hush. And, uh, and there was pretty uh, serious consequences given for that um, priest. Now, they, they gathered priests, the lowest people. These weren't Levites. These weren't of Aaron. They just gathered the lowest trash that they could and said, here, you be a priest. Okay. Chapter 8 shifts to another thing that the Lord shows him. Thus saith the Lord God, he showed unto me, Behold, a basket of summer fruit. He said unto Amos, What seest thou? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. Well, what's that mean? Well, let's see what it says. Then said the Lord unto me, The end is come upon my people. I will not again pass by them anymore. All right? When do you pick fruit? When it's ripe. It's time. It's gathered. I'm not waiting any longer. It's not going to be a delay. It's time. 
the songs of the temple shall be howling in that day. So they had some forms of temple up there um, in Israel, and there was howling is what it should be, what it will be. Saith the Lord, there shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth in silence. So earlier we started where there was going to be howling and wailing of everybody. It's going to be so bad where we're just, we're just chunking the bodies out in silence. We're just trying to process it. Hear this. O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes and sell the refuse for wheat? So they're saying, You are so wicked. Y'all have got these pretenses of religion where you don't sell on these particular days because it's not right to... They're saying, when is this going to be over? When can we get past Sunday when we can get to the liquor store, right? You know, that's the kind of concept. When can we sell our stuff, and when can we cheat people out of it, making the ephah small and the shekel great? So you got to give me more money, and I give you less grain. I'm, I'm cheating you, I'm deceiving you. When can I get back to dece- deceiving people? Earlier when we talked about selling the poor for silver and, and selling the needy for silver, here's, when can we buy him? So you got both ends of the trade of the spectrum of, of their enslaving and abusing the poor. When can we get back to it? We want And sell the refuse to the wheat. So you're selling poor quality stuff, and then you know that it's wrong. It's fraud, right? The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, saying, Surely I will never forget any of their works. And it's like they're rushing to do it. Lord, I see it. I'm not going to forget it. Shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn that dwelleth therein? It shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as if by the flood of Egypt. So the Nile um, floods regularly. So you imagine there's this flood coming up, drowning a lot of folks and carrying the rest of them who didn't drown off. That's the image of what you're having as they go into captivity. It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, I will cause the sun to go down at noon. I will darken the earth in a clear day. I will turn your feasts into mourning, all your songs into lamentation, Bring sackcloth upon your loins, baldness upon every head. I will make it as the morning of an only son. So you're grieving. You've only got one boy, and he's dead. That's how upset you are. That's how everybody's going to be that upset. And the end thereof as a bitter day. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God. I will send a famine in the land. This is not just any famine. He sent a bunch of famines already before. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water but of a hearing the words of the Lord. But of hearing the words of the Lord. There's going to be a famine where they couldn't hear the words of the Lord anymore. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. And in that day shall the fair virgins and the young men faint for thirst. And they that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. So there are going to be those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and they're fainting by the way because they're not going to find it. And then there are those who are still actively pursuing those false gods, and they're going to die. Okay? You know, this kind of leads into why was that big period where there was silence from the Lord after the captivity? That's what he told was going to happen. There was going to be a period where there was not going to be any prophets coming and speaking. And that period you know, is not broken until John the Baptist comes on the scene. And you wonder why there was such an interest in him. This crazy dude out in the wilderness. Why are people leaving their homes to go follow out to him 
It's because there, there was a hunger and there was a thirster and there had been a, just a massive dearth where God had not spoken in hundreds of years. So this is pointing to that. And this is, you know, that's still hundreds of years to come. All right. Everybody still awake? Good. One more chapter? Yeah. All right. Chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. What altar he's standing upon? I would suspect it's the one at Bethel, but it doesn't say specifically. But he said, smite the lintel of the door. I think that's the cross beam at the top. Smite it that the post may shake and cut them in the head, all of them. Um, I'm not sure if the head there is referring to the temple structure of these false swords. It's referring to the people themselves. Because it goes on to say, I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away. He that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Now, he's going to get real specific of where there is nowhere to run. We're going to use the imagery of though they dig down into hell, there thence shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the the top of Mount Carmel, I will search and take them thence. Though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, and the Lord's sight is not hidden in the bottom of the sea, but though they try... Then shall I command a serpent, and he'll go and bite them. There is no escape. The total, you know, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, then shall I command the sword, and it will slay them. So there are those, even if you volunteer to go into captivity, he's going to come after. He can kill you with the sword and that too. All right? I will set mine eyes, I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. That's scary. I will set my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And the Lord of God of hosts is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt. And all that dwell in shall mourn, and it shall rise up holy like a flood, and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. It is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven, your creator God, he that foundeth his troop in the earth, he that calleth the waters of the sea and poureth them upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Ask the question, Are ye not as the children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel? Have I not brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Cataphor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom. I've seen your kingdom. My eyes are upon it. I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. Their kingdom is going to be wiped off. Saving, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. He is going to preserve his remnant. At every point, he had the remnant who hadn't bound the knee, um, the ones who are not willing to bend his righteous, he would not destroy it for their sake. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel. If you're sifting things and you're trying to keep the grain, what you're leaving is all the, the husk, right? I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. And least grain, that refers to you and me and every one of his children. He won't lose any that are his, not a single one. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. So these are in natural Israel, and yet they're not serving him. They don't care. Um, you know, not all who are in Israel are of spiritual Israel. Yep, they're like the husks. So all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, The evil shall not overtake us or prevent us. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. Now, the tabernacle of David had not fallen yet. The tabernacle literally 
would not be the temple would not be destroyed until after the Assyrians had come, and then a hundred some odd years later, when the Babylonians come, they're the ones who born who destroy it. So this is a, an event that has not yet happened. But in that day will I raise up the tabernacle that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. This is the second spot that's directly quoted in the New Testament, and that shows up in Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 and verse 16. Um, um, real quickly, the, the context is that Paul and Barnabas had to go to Jerusalem because there are some folks saying saying you had to keep the law in order to be saved. And this is after they'd had their counsel and um, and then James, one of the apostles, speaks up and gives his his uh, you know, advice or declaration. It says, Men and brethren, verse 13, hearken unto me. Simon hath declared how the God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take them take of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and that all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. And so this, this verse in Amos is pulled all the way forward to show that this was God's intention, and that he had a people that were broader than just Israel, and it was going to include the Gentiles, and that his rebuilding of the tabernacle of David, that's that's Christ, right? His body, that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, that's referring to the death and the resurrection, and he's going to bring in all his people, and he's going to close up the breaches, and he can take these two and make it one. Okay? So last few verses. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. So you've got this illustration of times of just sweet plenty. So much so that the guy who's still gathering the food, the guy's coming right behind him and replanting. It's just there's no gaps. Everything's wonderful. It's perfect. You got everything you need. That really, it feels like a time to point to the new heavens, the new earth of when there's actual perfection as opposed to anything post-captivity here in the world. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. And they shall build the waste places, inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, drink the wines thereof. They shall make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord. Now, on one hand, that could point to post-captivity, that they would be brought back. But that's not permanent. There is a planting in God's land where it will be perfect, and it won't end, and, you know, time beyond mind. We can't even really imagine how good or great that it's going to be and that we see includes includes us as Gentiles, which is great news for us because if it didn't, we'd be in a world of hurt. So, 